0: fuck radio can do that that's amazing that's like what a relationship the power of making someone who's lonely feel connected and the power of the voice to yeah to be a part of someone's life um and I remember being blown away by that idea and forever thinking that's that's what I want to do
1: Might have a story for you. Hey, I'm Matt Levinson, and today I'm with one of the most influential people in radio and music in, in the country, really. She was a key player in the creation of FBI Radio, Double J, alongside a stack of other projects that we're going to talk about today. She's nudged and shaped the careers of countless talented people. My guest today, Megan Loder, is someone who creates space for people to succeed, and to succeed on a really large scale. She's mischievous and fun, empathetic and and really encouraging and more than happy to draw a line when it's needed as well. She's taught me so much and yet although I feel really indebted to her for her encouragement, you know, leadership and, and also her sort of disarming humor, I've never had the opportunity to sit down and get below the surface. So that's what this podcast is is about. It's about talking to great people, people whose work you've really respected and admired for a long time, but you know, and also who they are as people, but you've never had a chance to really dig below the surface. So I'm turning the tables, I've dragged my gear into the ABC headquarters today, and and we're going to do it. Megan, thank you so much for agreeing to do this.
0: We're doing it. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for asking me and for such an overwhelming... Um introduction so gorgeous and also for coming off that just kind of relaxed and sleazy but kind of you know what's going to happen intro music that really put me in the space with you and I'm so happy to be here.
1: I'm so glad to hear that from such an absolute radio professional as yourself that kind of <laughs> clinical analysis. Um, you have this wonderful air of I guess mischievousness and and and, but also of empathy and encouragement. And you have this track record of making these really impactful things happen in our city and country um, that have really, you know, left a trail of influence all, all over. And we're going to talk a lot about that. But I'm really interested in sort of stepping back to the start, you know, to your parents, to your grandparents, to understand where that came from. How did you get to be the person that you are? And what clues are there way back in at that time? <laughs>
0: Oh gosh. So um, I was born in Sydney. I've always lived in Sydney. Um, my Both my parents were school teachers um, and it's interesting. I, I meet a lot of people still um, and befriend a lot of people and I'm always surprised how many of the like-minded people I find have parents who are school teachers. So I think there's something in the way that um, I was brought up by them to be kind of curious and to seek understanding and to continually learn and to um, yeah to explore I think I think that's what they taught me and and they were really passionate about education as well so I really saw um, two people who were really focused on always coming home from work and just talking about, you know, the day and what teaching meant and um, their schools and, uh, you know, I think that was really exciting um, to, to be around such passion. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my background and um, my grandparents um, uh, were in Sydney as well, my mum's parents. My grandfather was a manager in a packing factory. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was an immigrant. Um and he he was a very funny human a very warm human he taught me to whistle and I feel like that's one of my probably my only musical skill is that's a great is life whistling. skill. I think so too. Yeah, and it was one of the first things I tried to teach my kids. Um, are we
1: talking musical whistling, or are we talking out at the you know football, you know, letting out a you know one of those huge whistles that some I can't have. do
0: them. I'd love to learn to do the finger and the mouth whistle. No, that's that's not musical. That's just making noise. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I'm I don't about have the that. warble, yep. the yep. warble whistling. Like, Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, when I was um, first dating my now husband, he asked me to whistle on one of his tracks, and I felt seen for the very first time musically. Um, yeah. So yeah, whistling is what he taught me. Um, yeah, and my grandmother was. Yeah, you know, um, my grandmother. She was, you know, one of those women who covered her sofas in plastic and um, oiled the leaves of the indoor plants. And that's, yeah, that's what I remember about them.
1: I love that story. My my grandma was a great whistler. Really, and unfortunately, she didn't she didn't give me the training. Mm. You know, I kind of wish that I had that. Um, you so you were. Um, daughter of a couple of public school teachers. Yeah. But you went off to a private school um, and I love this story that your parents scrimped and saved for you to go off to that Um, but I was reading that your brother needed braces and (laughs) so he missed out.
0: That's right. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they um, interestingly, they, they, you know, they came out of um, high school and went into teachers' college at a time when teaching was a really revered profession. Um, and there were lots of um, schemes where they were um, the government was enticing people into teaching, and that they went away after teachers' college and taught in Canada for um, nine years. Um, and when they came back, teaching was no longer that that profession that was. Um, respected, and so I think a lot of their careers, they kind of watched teaching um, become less and less of, of the kind of industry that people were really wanting to get into, which was I think challenging for them. I mean, obviously challenging for them, but education was you know a, a real passion of theirs. Um, so. And I think because they'd been in the public system at the time and had that experience where they felt like um, education in the public sector was being less and less invested in, um, they yeah they, they wanted to send um, me to a, a private school. I accidentally got into one in fifth grade and I think my brother went to a public school until the last two years of school um, and they decided that because he needed... Um, yeah, dental work, <laughs> and it was one or the other. Um, yeah, so I, I went to private school from fifth grade.
1: What was it like there?
0: It was. It was. Um, I loved school. Um, I, I had. I. I met my lifelong best friend in fifth grade, um, and I loved. I loved the school. I felt um, a little bit like an outsider because there was a lot of wealth there and you know my parents had like triple mortgaged their house to to put me through we never went on you know holidays or um I remember um school holidays um, all the girls would be um, going to Bali or skiing or Europe or wherever they'd always come back with these amazing tans and so um, I would just be at home and so every day I'd go out from 11 till 2 like the middle of the day covered in um, olive oil and just lie in the sun and try and tan Um, so that I could go back to school looking like I'd also been, um, traveling around the world and getting a tan. Do you think, um,
1: (laughs) I don't even know what to say to that. It's so
0: bad.
1: (laughs) It's just amazing. Um, (laughs) uh, what was the reaction like? To my tan? Yeah. Did it, did it sort of, did it fly at school? Well,
0: look, I think it just, I just, you know, I was trying to fit in, you know, I don't think anyone went, wow, where have you been? Um. They just kind of, you know, nodded and went, well, of course she's been to Europe or to Bali or something like that. Yeah.
1: I was a scholarship student at a private school, so I, ah. you know, I definitely feel that experience. <laughs> you know, I remember, um, you know, the whole bit. I don't have any stories that are quite as hilarious as that to retell <laughs> though. Um, you know, growing up for you was pretty tough as well, right? Like, um, I'm coming to this thinking about this photo that you posted on social media the other day of you and your mum when you were a little girl and your mum is just exactly you. It's, it's <laughs> actually blew my mind seeing that photo. It was just like seeing a slightly more 60s kind of dressed version of you and actually your style sometimes has verged into that sort of space anyway. <laughs> um, but she dealt with some pretty tough things and so did you, you know, growing up. Can you, can you talk to me about that?
0: Yeah, yeah. My mum um, was diagnosed with cancer when I was in first grade um, with breast cancer and um, for about 11 years of the um, uh, 16, 17 that I knew her, she was battling cancer. Um, But she was also working and really, um, a really strong human um, and, Yeah, it was, you know, it was a long time ago, 30, 31 years ago now, and cancer treatment was very different then, so she went through, um, yeah, various kind of stages of the breast cancer returning and having a lumpectomy and then a mastectomy, and then the treatment after that, and then the cancer came back a few years later, and then she had another um, lumpectomy and another mastectomy and more treatment. And then, um, and then she, she's an extraordinary woman. Like she's, you know, overachiever. She got three sorts of cancer. So she had breast cancer. She also got lung cancer and she also had skin cancer. Like she just smashed it in the cancer space. (laughs) The worst
1: Um, kind of overachieving though, right?
0: Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but she, you know, she and along the way there was hilarious moments where she, you know, she had, um, a, you know, a fake boob that she would wear in her in her bra, and she. I remember one time she was at a, um, a like a, a, a school carnival, and um, she was running. Um, in a um, a parent's run and her boob came out (laughs) in the middle of the race and she just picked it up and ran with it above her head and um, finished the race and we were all in hysterics. Like she was very, you know, she kind of took it all on her chin and um, I was so little that it was... It, it, you know, it didn't. It, it was just my my normality having a mum who, who had one boob or half a boob or no boobs, and um, and who was, you know, unwell. But I, you know, I didn't really have an understanding, being so young, of what that must have been like for um someone who was then a relatively young woman with young kids. How old was she again? Um, she died when she was 48. Wow. Yeah, and she she'd had cancer for um. Yeah, for on and off for about um, uh, 11 years by then, yeah.
1: I love that sense of just picking up that thing and just keep you on running, you know, like that for me is just, I mean, there's such a taboo about death, right, And and about really serious sickness, whatever kind it is, whether it's terminal or, you know, we've seen in the last few years this kind of gradual breaking down of the taboo around sort of deep mental health and you know all these things that people just don't want to talk about because it's I guess it just feels too awkward or too difficult to encroach um how you know as a first grader as as you know young girl you know like how how aware were you of this and how how much was it talked about at home
0: I mean they certainly told us what was happening I was um I remember her first surgery when I was in first grade and they just said, so look, they were sending me off to school and she was going off to surgery that day and they just said look just don't tell anyone about it you'll be fine we'll, we'll see you tonight and I was like okay don't, don't don't talk about it don't talk about it and I got to school and I remember my first grade teacher saying Megan come out and sit on my knee at the front of the class because that's what teachers <laughs> did in that in the 70s or 80s they put you on their knee.
1: A different time. A
0: different time <laughs> um, and and she said there's something happening to your mum today isn't there and I was like oh shit I'm not meant to say anything and I remember just sitting there quietly and saying, um, I don't know, and I had to, you know, I was trying to be loyal to my parents and trying not to, yeah. It was. I remember being very confronted by, by that very early. Um, but yeah, in terms of um, understanding what was happening, I don't have a very strong memory of of really grappling with um, with the, the prospect of her of her dying until. I think it was year year ten or eleven or year twelve um, when she was you know terminal, um, so that's the first time I really confronted what cancer, you know, like what the the, the a, a likely end point of cancer was was could be death. Whereas before, you're you know, and this comes from the medical profession as well, where you're just really thinking about treatment and fixing it. Um, and in some ways, I I remember when she when she passed away, I was really shocked. Because I'd been brought up thinking that you're always treating it and that the end – um, and when she passed away, I remember thinking, oh, well, that's the end of the cancer. So she'll just get up now because the cancer's over. So that took me a long time to understand. That was my first experience of death. So, yeah, that I remember being really um, – just sitting there waiting for her to stand up after the cancer had killed her
1: there's nothing that prepares you for that is there and, I, and I've and I've never had anything that close to me uh really um but there's but my experiences of death are always just they always so it feels so weird you know like there's just yeah. nothing really like it's just not conne- I mean it's not connected to life right um but it but it is something sort of just so unexpected about it and and weird
0: yeah, it is. Um, but it's also really beautiful and calm. Um well the 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 you know, the two um the three deaths that I've been there for have been really calm and really um quiet and really yeah, there's something quite um yeah, something quite amazing about them as well. Yeah.
1: When my grandma, the great whistler and hummer and singer um <laughs> died uh, you know uh, quite a few years ago now I remember that feeling of thinking this is going to be a you know a bit gross in a way like sitting there with her you know as she as she deteriorated she had an incredibly aggressive cancer and but actually sitting there with her and holding her hand for, for weeks in the lead up to that was one of the most moving experiences I've oh, ever had really? and and I, I really found like it sticks with me how much you know, my sort of expectations were completely wrong going right. into that. It was actually, as you said, like a really calm and but but quite beautiful moment.
0: I think so. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, and I think because you stop thinking about the illness and just think about the person um, and all the illness that has defined so much of their experience of the last short time goes away, and it just it just they become themselves again, which is a liberating thing. One thing that
1: I'm going to touch on in this conversation a few times is the sense of empathy that I think is really an important part of why you've been so great at a whole bunch of the things that you've done since. And so much of the time when I see people who have that kind of empathy, it's people who have been through some pretty tough times, especially when they were growing up. How do you reflect on how how that experience with your mum as a young girl Going into you know in primary school, going to high school, shaped you and and the kind of person that you are now.
0: Oh gosh, that's a good question. Um, I think I, it, I think it must be, and I think you're right. I think it's people who have been through difficult times as they're just getting on with shit. Um, it makes you it makes you think that whenever you're face to face with someone, that there's a whole pile of history and other experiences and other things happening in their life that um, that you need to be aware of and give them space for and and knowing that that that's just being a human and that's just reality so I think I think just having that experience that you know even though I'm just you know all my family were just fronting up to work or school every day when we got home we were dealing with you know, really um, big medical issues or, um, you know, un, un, not being sure of our future. And I think that that's another thing um, growing up, my grandparents. My grandmother was always very unwell. So um, every Christmas we'd set the Christmas table and be saying, um, well, this is probably grandma's um, nana, so we called her nana, nana's last Christmas. So there was never this sense that there was anything um that there was a future. There was. It was just the now that was so important, and celebrating being together and being present. Um, and I think that's really um, probably shaped how I think and how I engage with people. Is 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 just being um, understanding that what you have now is actually really important to to um, to celebrate. Um, yeah, and I think that y- when I think about my mum as well so she ended up being a careers advisor and um, she worked really hard to find people's strengths um, and to help them um, work out um, what it was that made them tick and um, that they wanted to lean into and and um, and I think that really like watching her Um, do that with so many people who'd come to our house and she'd ask them questions about who they were and and try and understand them. And she had this incredible intuition about people's strengths and who they were and, and she'd really help them. And so I'd see the impact that having someone be interested in them would have on their lives or just even that moment and that was really hugely inspiring. And I think, again, that was about being present and being interested and understanding um, what it was that made someone who they were.
1: That's so interesting to hear that because I reckon a lot of people would say the same thing about you and the way that you interact with people. Changing tack, when did you first grab onto radio? When did you first become aware of radio as something that was more than just something
0: that's in the background? Um, I mean clearly my whistling backgrounds brought me here Um, but Oh, gosh, I mean, my family always loved playing music and dancing. Loved music, you know. That was, um, that was the joy that that we had. Um, we'd, we'd have a family dance. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I mean, who doesn't? Everyone loves music, don't they? Um,
1: music plays different parts in people's home lives and in their lives, right? And, you know, you and I both love music. Yeah. And music is a big part of our lives. But for a lot of people, that's not the case. For a lot of people, it's just kind of wallpaper or not even. I think that is actually special and unique.
0: Yeah, I think it's the way it brings people together and the way that a song can completely change mood and a mindset um, but in terms of radio I do remember being at that private school in sixth grade and the principal was doing um, a, an assembly and doing a bit of like we always had a bit of a God lecture in, in the um, assembly which um, I always tuned out to but for, the, for some reason I caught a bit of this one um, and she was setting the scene of a, of a very lonely woman who every night at 9:57 would turn on her radio, and the announcer would say, "Thank you for joining us. Have a good evening. I'll see you tomorrow." And then the woman would hear that, and then turn her radio off and go to bed. Um, and then, in parallel, there was a, there was the story about the woman who had a relationship with their God, and would pray to God and um, and have, you know, have the love of God shine upon them. And, you know, I think the message was meant to be like how great was God and how awesome was that relationship and how lonely was the person listening to the radio. But I remember thinking at the time, fuck, radio can do that? That's amazing. That's like what a relationship. The power of making someone who's lonely feel connected and the power of the voice to yeah, to be a part of someone's life. Um, and I remember being blown away by that idea and forever thinking that's that's what I want to do.
1: I guess as a radio strategist as well, you take away, people come to this thing for so many different reasons, right? When did you start thinking about it as a career?
0: I reckon it was actually in that in that moment in sixth grade or fifth grade or whenever it was. Um, that's when I went, I, I want to do radio. That's 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 where I'll go um so yeah I always wanted to go um and do communications at uni I remember my dad (laughs) thinking he was you know um had no idea what I you know what I was talking about when I was saying I wanted to do radio and do communications he's like um and I started working at 2SER when I started at uni and um And he was really proud because like, oh, well, you could probably like call the dogs or something, couldn't you? Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Um, So it took me a while to kind of, you know, convince him that, um, what radio <laughs> career might look like, not that I needed to, but um, yeah, so I went to uni and, um, and started working at, or volunteering at 2SER on a drive program that played music and uh, interviewed artists and did current affairs and um, youth affairs. And, you were
1: um, producing and presenting at that time, weren't you? I
0: started producing, yeah, and then... Um, and, started, and then started presenting a couple of years later. How did you find it? it? I loved it. Oh, my God. I remember um, being given like a playlist to put together in my first few weeks and, um, yeah, um, just being blown away about how I could, you know, fit – songs and moods and ends and beginnings together and just being in absolute heaven and I learned from some of the most extraordinary radio and media people at the time who are still my my heroes and mentors and who I work alongside at the ABC with still so um, yeah Kath Dwyer who's running Radio National and Robbie Buck who is um, working on the program Joe Chichester who's at the ABC and an amazing. Um, TV producer now but yeah and just incredible people.
1: I guess all you know basically household names in radio now. Um, It's interesting to me though that you know at that time you know you were you producing went into presenting and I know you've been on the air every now and again but you've never really been presenting has never been your main thing. You've always really been behind the scenes producing and increasingly kind of leading and, you know, administering these um, radio operations and, and in some other cases, some other kind of adjacent spaces. What was it? Was it something that happened right back at that early point that led you down to this path of thinking behind the scenes? When, when did it click that actually that was the one that you wanted to do, the, the behind the scenes, the shaping and the kind of, yeah, shaping the radio?
0: Um, I think, yeah, I think I always, yeah, as I said, like putting that first playlist together, like that, that was really exciting. Um, working on my first radio doco where this is, this will show how old I am, but we, um, it was cut on tape and like physically razored and with chalk. And then I remember sitting there at three in the morning with, Pieces of tape stuck all over my arms and legs that were sound grabs and and half sentences and being an absolute heaven and just blown away by the creativity of of manipulating sound and um and um that that I just was so excited by by that idea um, more so than being on air. I love being on air, but I really loved. Um, the creativity of of the stage before that, and thinking about storytelling, and and I think sound, I get really excited by sound. Um, so that was probably the first um, the first time I got you know started thinking about what else you can do in radio. Um, I think I'm I'm qu- like quite um, <laughs> a bit shy, so so being on air probably wasn't ever going to be. Where I wanted to end up because I found that always found it um, like exciting. I loved it, but a bit like a bit scary. Um, But I um, I also really loved. helping other people and, and that was always something that really excited me was um, being able to support them to do well and I think as a producer that's the buzz you get at the end of a show that all the thinking that you've helped craft has made that person shine and it made them you know given them all the tools they need to to make their radio program sound amazing so I, I was re- always really um, satisfied and um, yeah excited by that.
1: You left there your first job was working at the Community Broadcasting Association and you know hindsight is twenty twenty. but I guess you know that must have been an amazing vantage point to see the entire landscape of community radio. Was it something that really set you up for some of the things that you've done since?
0: 100% yeah. So the Community Broadcasting Association is um, a membership organisation for community broadcasters around Australia. So I really learned about the radio sector and I was the assistant to the general manager there who was like this beautiful but very old school um, manager, Mike Thompson. And I learned so much from him. Like he, you know, I used to have to open his mail and go through his mail with him and respond to people and and then I kind of moved into membership and and was – you know, talking to um, radio managers around the country and and working through problems with them that they had with their staff or with their organization, or you know, um, you know, really helping um, think about what what it meant to run a radio station. And that was part of my role. Um, but also, Mike Thompson was just this beautiful. Um, he just taught me everything, and my my first. Um, My other manager there, Christina Alvarez, um, who ended up being the the first manager at FBI, um, one of the first things she said to me was that um, a good manager is someone who will teach whoever they're managing everything they know so that by the time the manager leaves, that anyone underneath them is ready to step into it. And she taught me everything that she knew and I've always had that same approach um, as I've managed as well is just sharing and teaching and making sure that everyone's empowered to um, to keep growing so I learned so much from her and and from Mike as well like he'd take me down to Canberra um, and we'd meet with the, um, the department and um, and I was terrified I was so scared and I remember one trip that the first trip <laughs> we took um, it was you know a three-hour drive to Canberra and he picked me up at 6 a.m from my from my home and um, and I was terrified about having to make a conversation with him for the next three hours, like shitting myself. Oh, sorry, that's preempting the story a little bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were driving through. I think it was Ashfield, and I I was just look, looking around desperately for anything to talk about. And we passed this building called House of Colostomy, and I was like, "Oh, it's an interesting religion. Maybe I don't know what that didn't know what that meant." And I said, "Mike, what's what's the House of Colostomy?" <laughs> and he Very kindly took a deep breath and just explained what colostomy was and I was so embarrassed.
1: Wow, what a conversation. What a setup for that three hour.
0: Oh my god. And then I went, Oh, oh, okay, thank you. Um I might just take a nap. And then I pretended to sleep the entire way to Canberra.
1: (laughs) Okay. You left that role at um, at the CBAA, and look, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure of um, the the sequencing here, but you wound up at Triple J, um, producing the drive show with you know big names like Charlie Pickering and Mel Bampton and all these people who were you know really household names in in Australia at that time. You know, it's the 90s. Yeah. You know, it was like Triple J felt like it was just totally central. I mean, in in many ways, it's it's probably even grown since then. Um, maybe it's just me who's just in a different kind of um, demographic now. But it felt so central to the culture in the 90s, you know, indie rock and grunge and all that kind of thing. And and those those big names were a really central part of it. And you were on one of the primetime shows. What was that experience like?
0: Oh, it was amazing. It was so fun, so good. Um, I loved it. And, yeah, incredible talent. Just, yeah, I loved being around um, those two, and Scott Dooley was on the show as well. And, um, yeah, just, you know, Will Anderson was doing Brekkie with Adam Spencer and, um, yeah, so many just brilliant brains and, and um, smart people and passionate people. Um, and yeah, it was a really exciting time to be at Triple Day and, you know, it was an absolute bucket list job. Like I'd always, you know, having grown up listening to music and being introduced to um, indie music by my brother, in high school as you know who isn't introduced to indie music by their brother when they're in high school um y- yeah you know was had been listening to triple j since i was you know a, a teenager so yeah total thrill to be there i still i still kick myself whenever i walk through the front door of triple j um i yeah it's it's such a thrill to work there and and there's still you know and always will be brilliant creative passionate people who who um carry that carry that torch and and still make incredible content
1: you around that same time you wound up working on this kind of interesting federal government funded project called Loud the um, big festival that was kind of you know at least the part that you were working on which was around the radio was getting you know young people an entry point into into the media how did you find your way into that um, this is the late 90s right
0: yeah God my memories fading <laughs> really pushing that. you. <laughs> Um I can't even remember how I got into that, to be honest. I think it was working at the CBAA. I was involved in um the very early days of FBI when they were doing um trial broadcasts. So um was um, a program manager there and, and presenting programs and, and, and pulling stuff together. So just kind of was meeting people through that experience.
1: That process started about 95, right? Were you involved yeah. right from day one?
0: Um, not from day one in because that was um, people pulling together to get the trial licences together. But I was in the first broadcast, test broadcast. So you had to um, – in order to get a licence at the time, and I think you still do, um, you have to kind of – prove that um, as a business you can set up a viable station and um, and operate a radio station and, and find an audience for it. So you, you get like a, a limited license, maybe a week or two, maybe a month to 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 prove that. Um, so the first broadcast was um, on Crown Street at the Clock Hotel, which is nothing was nothing like what the Clock Hotel is.
1: Oh, it was it was a really scary place back then. Really
0: it was like a um a bike a bikey hangout. Um and I remember I was on air um, on that first broadcast and, um, I was playing, I think I went from like a really indie song into a, um, Beach Boys song and all the old blokes standing around going, whoa, we didn't know young people could do that. And at the time, um, a massive bikey gang, um, do st- people still say bikey gang"? That's so. Fun.
1: I think that's allowed.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're cool. Um, massive, like fifty bikes started going past, and for the next, you know, that that noise for the next ten minutes as they all set off. So I remember trying to broadcast in between the bikes leaving the pub. But yeah, it was terrifying. Yeah, so I think I was, I was involved in that, and um, you know, similar people were setting up loud at the time um so yeah um
1: so was there you know i guess um you're volunteering and you're taking part in these trial broadcasts which were happening in all sorts of crazy places around the city loud music festival comes up that's an opportunity to work on some sort of similar stuff yeah adjacent stuff i guess and k grind as well (laughs) which i've (laughs) always been completely fascinated by because you know I i was at uni at the time and Studying geology, so I wasn't like part of the kind of group of people who were getting sucked into that vortex, but it feels like everyone who was doing anything interesting was sucked into that vortex. It just feels (laughs) like all the talent in the city was working on that in some way. What was it like?
0: Oh my God, that was wild. So that was um, the dot-com boom, and I think we famously burned through $11 million of investment funding in about 18 months just setting up what was actually quite a visionary um, website that was like a – it had about 11 channels of youth content um, and, it you know, it had video content. It had I, I set up the radio station there. Um, there was, um, you know, really talented, amazing people working there, but it was hilarious because no one could see the content. No, it was all – everyone was still on like a dial-up modem and you couldn't actually – I remember being
1: at uni, I was in a uni lab with like university internet, and I couldn't load the pages. And I was just like, wow, if I can't load it, I don't think anyone can load it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, on on your uni, um, yeah, on on that access. Um, But yeah, it was really, it was a really fun time. And you know, when I started, there was, um, I think about six of us. Um, and it was so, yeah, we are sitting, you know, I remember people sitting at their desks smoking cigarettes and, you know, um, it was really, un, it was a real, um, real startup, you know, completely unregulated. And by the time it folded, there was an HR person and there were rules and um, yeah, it was wild. It was really fun.
1: But it must have been, you know, like a rare opportunity to have a trial run of setting up a radio station, yeah. you know. The audience may not have, you know, eventuated. Um, It was obviously like at least a decade before its time. But that opportunity to do that with, you know, Money No Object um, must have been a really rare kind of chance to have a trial run before, you know, FBI was just around the corner.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was was an amazing experience and, you know, training presenters, finding presenters, getting the music happening, building the studios – um it was, yeah, it was really, it was a really fun time, really stressful at the same time for some reason. I can't, I, I think back now and, and I remember being really stressed and I'm not sure why now <laughs> thinking back. Um, but yeah, really fun, really fun.
1: I first came into your orbit, I think around, it must have been about 2005 yeah. when I started volunteering at FBI. But you, you know, as you we've been saying, you know, you'd been volunteering and been involved for a good 10 years. There must have been times where you just felt like, this was just a waste of time that it, it was just never going to eventuate. What got you through that? What kept, what kept the team going through that? Cause that's, I mean, it's just such a long run, yeah. you know, I mean now, you know, in, in your and my forties, like six years doesn't feel like that long, no. you know, it blows by in a second. But at that point in your life, that's like, that's a lifetime
0: yeah yeah and I think you know music and culture and the city changed a lot in that time as well. so that was challenging and and when we, and when we started um as a aspirant station, there was only a couple of us who were vying for the the um the licenses and by the time those ten years were up and the licenses were being um, granted, there was something like fifteen or sixteen. Um, different groups vying for the licences. So, um, yeah, times – and the, and really massive – I mean, you, you know, dance culture came in in a massive way in that time and there was um, stations like – I think it was Dex um, who were, were huge, like really massive commercial electronic dance It was a music. great station. It was fantastic and had really big following and um, it was a booming, blossoming scene. So it was really exciting. Um yeah, so, yeah, at times when you kind of saw the city change and and the um, the audiences change, that, yeah, it was hard to kind of go, wait a minute, what are we about again? Because it very much started as in that, as you said, like that peak 90s alternative indie kind of scene and sound and, and came from that part of the industry and so... Yeah, I think, um, yeah, a few identity crises, I think, along the way. But I think that the momentum and the belief that we'd, that we'd kind of gathered from pockets of the industry along that journey kind of kept, um, kept that belief and that positivity going
1: By the time I came along, you were really a seasoned station director. You know, you'd kind of done a lot of this stuff that we've been talking about and you were really forthright and and disarming about it. Like sometimes, you know, I remember when I was first coming in to do my first show uh, or talking about shaping up, you were like, you know, Matthew, that's not going to work. You've got to be Matt from now on and on the the air you've got to be Matt and that has stuck since then but on a (laughs) deeper level you know you always seem sorry about that you you always seem to know you know just what to say you know there were times when I was just completely dying on air you know like when I just didn't have it in me to say the next thing kind of like (laughs) I'm I'm feeling right now Um, but I could rely on you in those times to um, to call in and be endlessly positive, um, you know, like commenting on the great music selections or, you know, even just blatantly saying I was doing really well when, you know, I think both of us knew that I was totally failing. And I think that that experience, um, it was such a huge morale boost and, and I learned a lot from those kind of interactions. How, how, deli- how kind of structured and deliberate are you in those moments? I've always wondered, like, you know, whether – you know, like you were you know taking that seriously as your role as a manager and as station director to step in at those moments and course correct um yeah, tell me about that
0: tell me about that experience ah um firstly, apologies again for the matt thing, but I think it you know it almost goes back to um that original woman at nine fifty seven tuning in, and that for me that that yeah how important it was that everyone understood that there was a listener there with you, that you weren't alone and that um, what you were doing was actually really intimate and personal and and that's why I wanted to encourage people to just be comfortable and be themselves and um, I think that whenever I would hear people becoming something different, that's when I'd always step in and say, this is this is actually really important that you're thinking about the listener and connecting with their needs um, and not thinking about your needs as much. So I guess, yeah, I'd step in when I could hear that that was where um, content or presenting or music was veering into, um, was always thinking about the listener, always, you know, you feel like you're very much in service of, of, of who they are and what they need. Um yeah, so – and I think, it, you know, it's probably just intuitive having done those roles, being a presenter and knowing that there's some times where you just – it's so scary. It's so scary that your work is just um, – whatever's in your head at the moment is suddenly coming out your mouth and it's, it's almost when a mic goes on, you can't even think. Um, and, and that's that that can be a horrible feeling or it can be a really liberating feeling. So I understand, you know – Absolutely, what it feels like to be in that moment where you feel a bit out of control, and you just need to, someone to say it's okay, you're doing okay. Um, so I'm not sure how deliberate it is; it's more just an instinct um, that I, I, I think I respond to because I've I've been there, and I'm, you know, I understand how that feels.
1: We were talking at the start of this conversation about your mum and how she dealt with cancer when you were growing up and also how she just kept on working and, you know, um, encouraging the kids that she was working with and and ultimately sort of giving them that boost into their next careers and and all sorts of things, you know, the careers advice and all, all, all of that. You know, over the past decade, you've also had this massive challenge of, you know, facing up to cancer yourself and at the same time, you know, creating whole new radio station with double J and keeping on encouraging all of these waves of talent and supporting them through what is that what's that experience of the last decade been like for you
0: um yeah look um having uh, uh yeah uh, my can I just had you know like bog standard breast cancer I was totally fine um And it didn't spread, which was great, got it really early, so really fantastic, got a new pair of boobs, awesome. I'll be the talk of the nursing home, they'll always be, you know, sitting upright. Um, But it was confronting and I think that it was really confronting because I was, I also had young kids at the time and for the first time I think really understood what my mum had been going through. Um, whereas I hadn't really understood what that might have might have felt like to be a you know a, a mum with young kids and having to deal with your shit, but also the, the like how brilliant it was to have young kids and be going through you know that scary diagnosis and treatment um, because your kids just as a parent every all parents no you just have to keep going and you just have to keep making them laugh and keeping feeding them and um and and you just keep going so you know, they give you a real real reason to not, re- like, dwell on your own shit and be self-indulgent too much. And um, is that
1: part of what's, you know, a- allowed you to keep on showing up to work, to not to show up to work but actually be creating whole new things?
0: Yeah, it gives you such a sense of purpose and, um, you know, you, you try desperately not to be defined by, um, a, you know, an, a, 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 an illness um, and you, you, you look for other things that um, bring you joy and bring satisfaction when, and things that feel a bit more like you have um, influence on and control over, I guess, whereas when you're dealing with um, an illness, it, it feels a little bit out of your hands what the outcome will be. So I think there's a real satisfaction with um, continuing to work and, and staying focused on, on um, what you can do.
1: Were you able to approach it? approach this experience in a different way do you think because of you know the experience of having been that kid as well
0: um I I don't know I mean I have I've always had imposter syndrome in my work like I've only just dealt with it over the last few years but even when I was in the cancer hospital the amazing Chris O'Brien hospital in Sydney um (laughs) I um I, I had this massive imposter syndrome in, as I was like lying there with tubes and, and bags coming out of me and I was like, oh, I don't think I should be here. Like I've just got really basic cancer um, and there's other people here who clearly need this room and um, I should just go home. And, um, and I felt terribly guilty as well that um, I was getting this amazing treatment when my mum hadn't had that opportunity and, you know, I'd go and visit her and she'd be sharing a ward with... Um, with three other women and I had this private room in this amazing facility and I felt terrible about that and I was like I don't even have proper cancer I've just got you know lower c cancer so yeah I think I I did find it really difficult um to 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 kind of um the yeah the double the the double processing of my own um you know moment in illness but but then understanding my mum better and wishing I could have gone back and said, I'm really sorry, I didn't know, um, or ask her questions or just give her a hug. That was hard.
1: I often have those kind of moments um, in, in totally different and far less kind of stark ways with um, my kids growing up and just kind of having these great insights into my parents and particularly my mum, who was who was a real rock growing up. How did you? How did you... Deal with that imposter syndrome. You you just said like I had it up until a few years ago, yeah, and and I've been processing it. How, how do you process that? And 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 how do you get through that? Tell me, talk me through that.
0: Um, yeah, I it's it's been massive for me actually. Like you know, I, I talk think about all the roles I've done over the years, but I would I would walk into every meeting in every room going someone's going to blow a whistle any minute and go what does she know why are you asking her questions why would you listen to what her response would be Um, I don't know if it's just a confluence of of being of having had now a fair bit of experience and um, feeling a bit more confident that what I'm saying comes from experience um, and that I can back that up and a bit of an uh, you know being older and kind of just convincing myself that if you know it's that kind of mantra of just continuously having to say if not you who if not now when um and just having to believe believe in myself a lot and I think it was in that in that cancer ward moment where I was like even here I'm still feeling like an imposter
1: it's outrageous
0: it's crazy and 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 I remember thinking particularly as a woman down the hall who I ended up becoming friends with who um who I was like no she really needs this ward like she's obviously really unwell and and her and then you know as I got to know her she it was interesting because she yeah her cancer wasn't um as progressed as mine in terms of you know like and and that really kind of shocked me because I was like oh no she really needs to be here so that that, that was confronting knowing that that, in, that 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 was how I thought of myself in any situation not just in workplaces um but yeah, I think, yeah, it's taken a long time to work through. and I, But I think a lot of people have it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, look, I feel it a lot. Um, but it's extraordinary that someone with your track record and all the things that you've objectively achieved in your career so far could be feeling that. I think it's it's mind-blowing. It also reflects that it's it's about perception and it's about something that's happening in your head rather than the reality. And, you know, I think that experience... <laughs> In the cancer ward you know it really <laughs> tells you that it's you know it's not objective right it's it's something yeah. that's deeply subjective i want to ask you one final question I, I really wanted to dig more into what you're doing here at the abc and and a stack of other things but you know we've had we've I've been, been
0: banging on about my whistling so uh, that's taken a lot of airtime i think we I might understand. we might need
1: to have an outro of, of whistling <laughs> but i want to ask you one last question um You know, you're only a couple of years older than me and so like basically you're very young. But in my (laughs) time working in civil society and in social change, the biggest segment of people, you know, who make things happen is just women in their 60s and 70s, you know, who turn up, they show up, they volunteer, they just do all the stuff. I want to ask you, for someone who's changed and achieved so much in your career so far and your life so far, what are the wild things that you want to do when you reach that change maker age of women in their 60s and 70s when you're free of all the stuff? You know, what what are the things that you're going to do at that next stage?
0: I can't wait to dress like a sixty-seven-year-old woman. Far out! They have the best style. Like that's really exciting, but that's just you know that's that's ego speaking. Um, <laughs> um, look, we talked about this earlier and um, around the perception of death. And um, my I had a lot of death very early on. So my mum passed away, and both my grandparents passed away. Um, Within six months after that. And then my dad died a couple of years later. And I went to these terrible funerals that had nothing to do with who they were as people. Um, And at the time, when I was, you know, um, 20 or something, I was just like, I think we could do funerals better. Um, So I enrolled in TAFE and started doing um, um, mortuary science because I wanted to understand the industry and, and you know, you know me at the time I had and still do like ridiculously fake red hair and um, um, at the time was looked like a child. I was a child. And I was like, I can't really go into this industry now. Like no one will trust that I have any knowledge of what it feels like to, to lose someone. Um, but I really did, you know, I really cared.
1: And you really knew as well.
0: I really knew, yeah. Um, so... Um, I've always, I've always wanted to, um, make the funeral experience and, um, the, the, the kind of death industry, a bit of a warmer space. So that's, uh, yeah, I think that's probably what I'll, uh, and I've always, you know, been interested in, 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 in that. Um, so I'll probably move into that space in my sixties and seventies dressed fabulously.
1: I I can absolutely see that. I, I love that idea. Megan, it has been so great to talk to you today. Um, Before we properly wrap up, I've got three quick fire questions to ask you. What is keeping you up at night?
0: I don't know how to answer that one, Matt. There's so many things rattling through my head that keep me up at night. Um, Do you write them down? No, I don't. I should. What's keeping me up at night? Just um, working out how to find more energy to be a, a better friend and a better person to people.
1: That sounds like a really... Good reason to stay up at night. Um, who else should I be talking to?
0: I mentioned someone earlier who I worked with um, back at the two SCR days, an um, amazing woman, Kath Dwyer, who's now re- yeah running RN. Um, she's an incredible storyteller, has an incredible history of creating incredi- you know, amazing social... Um, social change through media and storytelling starting um, ABC Open which is which was a program at the ABC giving um, gear and um, um, the space to the community to tell their stories and she was really involved in um, giving women a voice in media really early um, at the ABC and she's um, just a, she's extraordinary I'd yeah, love to hear more about what makes Kath tick.
1: Yeah I love that idea last question um what gives you hope?
0: Uh, my children and my friends' children and their their um, their resilience and how quick they are to um, move with change and um, and how funny they are.
1: I love that. I just feel so inspired by how fast change is happening in this generation. And you know, I'm listening to FBI. Actually, the way that the conversation is just shifting massively around gender and sexuality and race and culture and all those sort of things it just feels like it's a fundamentally different experience definitely than when I was a you know 20 something kid
0: yeah yeah and you're right the the language they're so comfortable moving with so quickly is just exhilarating and inspiring
1: Thank you so much for your time, Megan. This has been totally excellent um, talking to you. If people want to see your work, if people want to find out more about what you do, where would you send them?
0: Um, I think to any of the – I don't know. I I still get thrilled seeing an FBI um, sticker on a car in Sydney. I'm really proud of the work that um, I was able to do with all the amazing people there and that the station's still going strong. So, yeah, definitely FBI. Um, And, you know, any of the radio music radio stations at the ABC I'm really proud to work with as well.
1: Yeah, what an amazing landscape that you've worked across. You've been listening to another podcast. Um, If you haven't heard the previous interviews in this series, I really recommend you dig back in. Jess Cook from 107 Projects, Sasha Coles, the landscape architect, Kayleen Milner from Wawa, and Loose Fit, um, the fantastic band. There's so many others, and they all have amazing stories. So I really recommend you dig in and listen back to them. If you find this fascinating, and let me know what you think, I'm um, on various social media Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, all those sort of things, and love to hear. <laughs> story for you.